Good morning, everybody. I am glad you're here. I've got a lot to say. So on your mark, get set, go. I'm, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm going for it even as we speak. Uh, I'm doing a little series because it's Christmas time. Next Christmas, uh, next Sunday is the 19th. It's going to be our Christmas service on uh, Saturday night as well as Sunday morning. We're not doing the candlelight thing on Sunday morning, but I am speaking and I am talking about Christmas and a lot of good stuff going on. But I do want to talk to you about Made for More. Uh, I think that uh, we often settle for much less than what we were created for. And I think we were made for more. And so we're um, talking today about, the, about approval. And again, this probably doesn't uh, affect anyone here because none of you are probably ever addicted to the approval of everybody else. So if you could just maybe take some notes that maybe you could help somebody else who is addicted to approval. And if they're addicted to approval, if you say you approve them, they'll sit and listen to you because they want to keep you happy. So I'm calling it the disease to please, uh, the, uh, the continual pursuit for more. And so how do you know if you've got the disease to please? Well, I'm glad you asked because I've got it right here in my notes and it is in your bulletin. There are some diagnoses for the disease to please. And so you know, if the, the first one there is you obsess about what others think of you. You're just always worried about what other people are thinking of you. If you obsess about that, you just might, uh, remember Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck. No, not a redneck, but you might have the disease to a please. I understand it's good to be self-aware. Who's ever known people that weren't self-aware and they use their outside voice when they're inside? Who's ever been in a conversation? Somebody's talking, 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 and you want to say, hey, you know, we're inside, and the whole restaurant just heard what you said. Self-aware is not bad. I understand image. That's why I wear the coat that I do. And isn't it nice? Some people look good casual. Some don't. I need all the help I can get. And so I understand image, branding, all that kind of stuff. And the reason I wear a coat, it looks so much better online. And for those of you online, I dressed up for you today and every week that we do that. But how many know too much of that is just weird? Too much concern about what do they think of me? Do they like me? All that kind of stuff. And the second one is you're overly sensitive about criticism. Now, nobody likes to be criticized. And if you enjoy criticism, then you maybe need to get a counselor and, and talk to about that. Nobody enjoys that. But the truth it is, if you're overly sensitive, then you repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. And nobody can talk to you because you get so terribly offended. You're just hurt and wounded when someone would like to help you get better at what you do, help you be more successful. And I'm not talking about just ripping you apart, but you're just way overly sensitive to, uh, to criticism. Somebody says the least little thing and you uh, have a bad week or something. Or the third one there is you have a hard time saying no. You're prone. If you have a hard time saying no, you've got it. You've got something on you. You got a sticker on your forehead, and you are prone to people who are going to pressure you, make you feel guilty, uh, make you feel like you're responsible for the entire world. And this works especially well in church. I've heard it said, if Jesus did that for you, it's the least you could do for Him. <laughs> After what He did for you, you won't even for Him. I tell you what, that's, that's a cheap shot and it's not true. The truth is what Jesus did for us, none of us could ever repay. I tell you, that's just the gospel truth. But if you're kind of prone to that, uh, you know, you, uh, and, you know, you hurt Jesus. You made Jesus feel bad 
when you did that. So I hope you're happy because you hurt Jesus. I've heard it said, so don't be prone to that. But if you have a hard time saying no, or if you avoid conflict at any cost, you just won't confront. You just hate conflict so bad, you'll agree to most anything. You'll say most anything just because you don't want to have any conflict. Uh, you, matter of fact, uh, you can be just downright dishonest on occasion because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You're afraid of conflict. I knew a supervisor one time that he gave all of his employees just A ratings and, you know, the stars and all that kind of stuff. And then about three months later, I wanted to fire one of them. And I said, why do you want to fire one? Three months ago, you said how wonderful they were. Well, I didn't want to make them feel bad. Well, then you can't fire them if you didn't tell them how rotten they were in the first place. Well, I didn't want to make them feel bad. So if you want to be a supervisor, you better get ready to not confront, but just to help along. Uh, and so Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. See, guys, what the fear of man does, it'll, it'll, it'll become, it'll prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The truth of it is you can't avoid and you can't hide from these things forever. Uh, it'll stunt your growth, it'll limit your success, which takes me to point number one. Now, my point is different than the point that you had in your bulletin. I reworded it, and it, since it's not in the Bible, I can reword it if I want to. <laughs> number one, the disease to please can be a subtle form of idolatry. What? Yes. The disease to please can just be a subtle form of idolatry, and maybe you've never thought of it this way, but I hope you do today. Galatians 1.10, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. He said, I'm really not after keeping everybody happy. I'm not trying to win the approval of everybody else, but of God. He says, and if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. He says, I really want to be Christ's servant, I want to be a follower of Jesus, and uh, he says, uh, and so doing that causes me to please him and not you necessarily. I think we need to pre-decide who we're going to please. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. And my thing is you can't serve both God and everybody else's opinion, everybody else's approval, because you are just not going to get it. Uh, you compromise who you are, you're, it's, it's, you know, the, you're just too dominated by an opinion of the culture, by public opinion. Now, it, while I say that, how I many know I'm, not, I'm saying it's okay not to be weird? Who knows Christians that they're so glad to confront anything? Watch them on Facebook. That's, anyway, they're so glad to just go off on anybody. They're not afraid. And you want to say, you know, you don't have to be weird to follow Jesus. I just want to say I'm doing better preaching than you are a manning. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, 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 it's not that you've got to just be in somebody's grill all the time. It's okay to be relevant. But when the culture, when public opinion matters too much, it can be absolutely idolatrous. And a, and a scripture that's not in your bulletin, but it's Romans, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. This one has really helped me. And for those of you that have done the disc test, I'm a high eye. But I'm, I'm a high sanguine. If there, there's other tests like that. And so I have a basic, I like people to like me. Do you like me? Is this okay? Are we doing? No, I like people to like me. 
And that's not a bad thing. It's, it goes, some personalities are a little more that way. But Isaiah says, uh, don't be like this people. Isaiah 8, 12. Always afraid there's a conspiracy against them. See, they had conspiracy theories back in then, those days too. So Isaiah says, don't be like them. Don't fear what they fear. Don't take on their worries. Don't fear anything except the Lord your God. If you fear him, you need fear nothing else. And what helped me tremendously in my younger years, when I was having to make decisions that a lot of folks didn't really like and take a direction that a lot of folks really didn't like, I had to choose who was I most afraid of. Now, I'm not scared of God, but I don't want to displease him. And I would rather displease you than displease him. Because ultimately, he is my God. And so if you're going to make anybody unhappy, it's better to make somebody else unhappy than the Lord. John 12, great scripture here. It's, it's one of the, uh, it, it's so interesting. In John 12, 42, it says, many of the Jewish leaders believed Jesus to be the Messiah. You know, they finally killed him for claiming to be the Messiah. But many of the Jewish leaders believed that he was the Messiah, but wouldn't admit it to anyone because they feared that the Pharisees would excommunicate them from the synagogue. The synagogue in those days was the center of the world. It was their social center. It was the economic center. It was the center of all of life. And if you ever got excommunicated from the synagogue, it's like being kicked off of Facebook. <laughs> it's like being, oh, I don't want to say anything, guys. It's like being defriended by everybody. And so they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they didn't want to say anything lest they should lose their place. Verse 43, for they love the approval of men more than the praise of God. Trying to be so politically correct that the public opinion to be culturally accepted, they miss the face to face with the Messiah himself, with Jesus himself, their position their tradition kept them, their fear of man kept them in a disease to please. And they stood face to face with Jesus the Christ. Wouldn't we love to have been there and seen him in, in those days? And they missed it because they were looking for the approval of everybody else and not, and not the Lord. Number two, the danger of idolatry is multi-generational. See, the bad thing with idolatry, it's just not about you. It's about your children. It's about your grandkids. That's who bears the brunt of a lot of this idolatry that goes on. People either come to their senses and say, that was stupid, and move on with their life, but they leave something behind for their children to, uh, and, and it's a mess. Uh, Second Kings says it in 17, Second Kings 17, even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving the, their idols. So what they had they, you know, in, in front, they had God and worship God and all that kind of stuff. But in the back room, they had all their idols going on. So their lives were one thing on while they were in temple, one thing when they were in synagogue, but a whole nother thing going on in the back room somewhere. And they were, while they were worshiping the Lord, they were sacrificing and serving their idols. 
To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do so as their ancestors did. See, I'm convinced that idols change in every generation. How many know what was cool 20, 30 years ago is not so much anymore? Idols that people had back in the old days. If you don't think things change, go look at your high school yearbook. And no offense to any of you here, but just look at how stupid you really looked. And you thought that was cool. You know, when you swing your hair around or however you did it back in the day, and if you don't, if you don't, you look at kids' yearbook now. I got grandkids with yearbooks and all that kind of stuff, and they are so proud that they are so cool. And I'm saying to myself, I never say it to them. That'd just be unkind in your mean old grandpa. But if I say it to myself, someday you're going to look at that and be really embarrassed. <laughs> Things really change. See, the trouble with idolatry, mixing with true worship to God, is you get inoculated with enough of Jesus to give you a, a resistance to the real. When your walk and your talk don't match and you see somebody's life whose walk and whose talk doesn't match. I was raised in an old-fashioned Pentecostal home where we didn't listen to secular music. We didn't go drinking, dancing, smoking movie theaters. We barely went bowling. Just on, It was nothing on Sunday, and it was one of those kinds of houses. But I saw in my folks that they really loved the Lord, and they really loved people and were willing to help them. Poor people, high-class people, low-class people, it didn't seem to matter. My mom and dad really loved the church. They loved the Lord. And when you're 14, 15, 16, like I was, making decisions about what you're going to do with the rest of your life, I picked the ministry because I wanted to be involved in that. And when I chose ministry, I really thought we were poor, that I was choosing poverty. I was choosing kind of a less-than lifestyle my whole life. Learned to come to find out that's really not true, but I thought it was. And when I saw the reality, and so what I did with my children, you want, I see what I do with you. I want to be the same guy on Sunday that I am on Monday, that I'm in when I'm standing on this stage, that I'm when I'm in, in the boardroom, the office room, anywhere around it. It's the same guy, except wearing the microphone. I, my wife won't let me wear the microphone home. It's just, no, no, no. It's the same deal going on. It's not seeing one thing and really acting another way. Worshiping God while they got their idols going on. See, Second uh, Kings says, Ammon followed the example of his father, Manasseh, worshiping the same idols as his father has worshipped. And guys, I think sometimes for us older generation, we're expecting a younger generation to maintain the same style. No. The style that I have, they call it old school. Okay. I think there's nothing worse than an old man trying to act young. Hello? Yes, old school. But that doesn't mean the next generation has to be old school. It's a different style. The same message, it's a different method. And if us old guys are demanding everyone just have our style and our methods, no wonder the younger generation says, you guys are just weird. And if that's Christianity, that's not Christianity. It's a style. It's a style. That's all it is. Well, it's the anointed style. No, it's not. It's my style. I like it, so I'm going to do that. You don't have to. And I think the next generation is going to look really different, which is great 
God is honored, Jesus is glorified, and people come to Christ regardless of the style or the message that you use, but the message always stays the same. Number three, idols weren't treated with delicacy, but with destruction. See, Old Testament says, now don't treat your idols like you do your valued Christmas ornaments. And we've all got those Christmas ornaments that Graham Graham gave us, and we put them on the tree, and then at the end of Christmas, we take them down and wrap them in, in tissue, and then wrap them in more tissue, then put it in a box and wrap that in tissue, and because those special ones, he says, don't you treat your adults that way. They're not special. They're to be destroyed. They're to be disintegrated. They're to be, just, just don't treat them well at all. See, for a lot of people, their, their need to please, their disease to please, it, well, it's just my personality, a quirky little personality thing that I have. You know, my mom was that way, and my dad was that way, and I guess I'm just that way. Don't, no, 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 no. Don't you call that a quirky little personality trait. If it's an idol, call it that. We'll talk about that in a second. It's the truth that is they were not, they were not meant to be treated carefully, put aside, that you could use again when you need it. God says, no, I want you to destroy those things Burn them, tear them apart, and treat them with as much disdain as you can. Matter of fact, Exodus, you remember the story of Moses coming down from the mountain and they had built the golden calf? Anybody remember that story from Sunday school? Anyway, so, so Moses comes down and sees what they had done and says, Aaron, and he was the guy in charge, he said, what have you done? And Aaron said, man, you wouldn't believe what happened. They took their earrings, they threw them in the fire, and boo, out jumped this calf. Sounds like a teenage story, doesn't it? That's what Aaron and Moses said, hey, don't give me that stuff. You're not, I wasn't born yesterday. And so, uh, so Moses took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Now, first of all, you, how do, what do you do with gold? You can't burn gold. But what they did is this calf was a wooden structure that they overlaid with gold. So Moses torched that and burned it. And then he ground the gold into powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelis drink it. Now, if you don't know what happens, if you drink ground gold, which I'd never have, in the water, it'll give you diarrhea like you've never had before. So Moses burned that baby, ground it into powder. He says, you want this stuff? Now drink it. And there was a catharsis that followed that just wouldn't end. (laughs) Just thought you might need to know that. You know what, online, aren't you glad you tuned in today? See, uh, 2 Chronicles 34, 4 says, under the direction of King Josiah. Now, Josiah was made king when he was eight years old. And in his eighth year, so he's 16 years old, it finally dawns on him, something needs to be done about this idolatry that's going on. So what he does, the altars of Baal were torn down and cut to pieces. He smashed the Astoroth poles and the idols. He says he showed disrespect, destroy, disregard, defile, desecrate all these idols. And until you look at that idol that you're serving, ma'am, sir, and that kind of a light, you're going to be hard time breaking loose of it. If you can treat it as that special little thing that you got from your mom, that you got from your dad, and you wouldn't want to dishonor that in any way, I tell you, you might bow to that idol for the rest of your life, and you might be tied to people-pleasing forever. And that's not God's plan for you. Takes me to number four. Healing is processed as we replace idolatry 
with God's assessment of us. Now, I believe it begins by facing that idol. If this is not you, then that's great. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm, just, uh, I'm happy for you. If this is not you, then, I'm, then this is for somebody else. Is you face the idol. Instead of calling it a little quirky thing, that's become an idol to me. I don't think you get any better until you face sin for what it really is. Well, boys will be boys. Don't give me that stuff. That doesn't adjust, that doesn't excuse grown men with bad behavior by saying boys will be boys. Well, it's just the midlife. Don't give me that stuff. That's, that's, that does not excuse bad behavior for anybody. So I think healing is a process. If you're a people pleaser, you're probably not going to get over it in a day. It's going to be, I think it's like an exercise muscle. I had somebody tell me one time, well, pastor, it's easy for you because I just don't like to confront. And I said, like I do? Do you think it's a walk in the park to confront people when they're doing something wrong? No, it's, it's no fun at all. I like to just go and have fun, food, and fellowship. But the truth of it is, I think we've all been given the muscle and the ability, and as you exercise that, it grows and develops. And anybody can get mad and blow your top. I'm not talking about that kind of confrontation. Well, I told him, and I got on Facebook, and I told him. No, 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 no. Speaking the truth in love is the plan here. Not that you're ripping somebody's life apart or calling them every name that you could think of. It's not that. It's speaking the truth in love. Being able to disagree without being disagreeable. Being able to state an opinion without a full of rage and anger and judgment. My God. No, no, no. That's, see, that's not confrontation. That's just blowing your stack. And I'm not talking about that. I think we've been given a muscle inside of us that it, when it's exercised, you have the ability to say, whoa, no, I'm not going there. I don't believe that. I think this. And you can speak the truth in love. Is that you believe what God says about you. I think feelings cannot be trusted. I think for a lot of people, your emotions have become your God. Because your emotions are the thing you bow to. Are the thing you determine what's truth and what's not. Especially in a culture that we live where I feel, I think, I believe, I've experienced, therefore it must be true. Are you kidding me? You exchange absolute truth for experiential truth? Really? Because you think it, it must be true? No offense. I hope I'm not going to be inoffensive. I'm going to be real nice. This is my nice voice. Real nice here. The truth of it is, you have no foundation but you. And no wonder you're so insecure. Because you've become your own rock. You've become your own salvation. You have become your own God. That sustains yourself. That causes you to have energy. And direction, you've become your own God. And so you're, 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 your God is as strong and as smart and as forgiving as you are. Could it be that's why you have such a hard time forgiving yourself? 
because you're doing it yourself. I just can't forgive myself. Okay, okay. I suppose I couldn't either. And again, I hope I'm not being unkind. I suppose I couldn't either if I thought that I was my own God. That he has forgiven me. And his word is higher than my feelings. And again, I'm not going to go off on it, but can you believe the kind of life decisions that are being made by children, 8, 10, 12, 15, 16 years old, about sexual orientation? Little guy believes he's, he's kind of feeling weird about things, so he must have been a girl. Little eight-year-old decides that he's really not a boy, he really must be a girl. And everybody says, well, that's good that you've decided that God made a mistake. Are you kidding me? You're deciding that at eight years old? (laughs) So open-minded, the brain fell out. (laughs) Really? Adolescence, puberty brings brings ambivalent feelings. I understand that. God knows I'm going through one. No, I understand that, and that's fine. That's just part of growing up. But you would make life decisions based on how you feel? You're never going to get over it as long as you keep that idol there and keep bowing to it. You won't get any better. Paul said our purpose is to please God and not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Paul in Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse 10, is, is not in your bulletin. He says, but, but, but the kingdom of God is not filled with idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, and he lists a whole bunch of sins. And then verse 11, there in your bulletin, and such were you, and such were some of you. He says, the things I just listed, that's what you used to be. That's what you used to be. Pick which one you want to pick or pick all that he didn't list. He says, but you used to be that. And then he says, but, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. What you used to be is not what you are now. He says, you were all those things. You're some of them anyway, but you were washed. He said, Jesus took and he washed you. And then the word sanctified, it means it's set apart. He washed you and then he set you apart. And then he justified you. You know what justification means? Just as if I had never sinned. He said, that's what God has done for you. And so if you would please quit trying to justify yourself and stand in what God has already done for you. You don't have to serve yourself. There is a God whose opinion and assessment of you is much higher than you'll ever have on your own. You've been around me very long. You know I don't give a whole lot of credit to self-confidence. Paul says I don't count that for anything. But confidence in God will take you to the, to the next level. Amen. It'll help you get there. Self-confidence, I think, is way overrated. Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Later in Hebrews, he says, if, if 
Jesus was the sacrifice that was offered once and for all. That's why there is no need of a again and again and again and again because the Hebrew says that there was no more consciousness of sin. No more that, that thing in front of you all the time. That thing that you didn't do right. I tell you what, but it circles around you. And if you could get you out of the center of your life, your sin consciousness would go away because your hearts have been sprinkled clean from a bad conscience. Conscience, And there is no more need for a consciousness of sin to be always aware. You heard me say it often. You and God are fine. He has sprinkled your conscience. It's clean. And then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Look at the last part of that verse. For he who promised is faithful. It's about God and not about you. And if you're the center of the universe, you're still thinking it's all about how righteous you can be and how next time you're not going to do that and how bad those other people are. They're a lot worse than you. And on and on. The truth of it is, he says that he that promised is able to perform it. He that promised is faithful. See, approval junkies. Sounds like I'm insulting you. I don't mean to. Are incredibly self-centered. Well, I'm not full of pride. Yes, you are. You're thinking about you all the time. Well, Pastor, I'm glad I came to church. You insulted me 14 times today. (laughs) I wanted you to get your money's worth. That's what I said. (laughs) Jeremiah, come on up. Revelation 1.4. He says, grace to you and peace from him. Now look at the verbiage here. Who is, who was, and who is to come. John, who wrote Revelation, wanted to make sure you knew who he's talking about. He's talking about the eternal God who is, who was, and who is to come. We're talking about the eternal God. To him who loved us and washed us with his own, washed from our sins, with his own blood, who loved you, who washed you from your sins with his own blood. I'm asking you to believe what God has done instead of believing the rhetoric you got running in your head. That old tape, those old reels that just keep going on and on and on. Believe what he's done to him that loved you who washed you from your sins with his own precious blood. Then the last phrase of that, he says, he has made us kings and priests. You talk about destiny. He has made us kings and priests. Kings are people who rule over things. And priests are the ones that help people come to God. What Jesus has done has made you a king and a priest to his God, and his Father. Do you understand that you and Jesus share the same Father? Do you understand that you and Jesus share the same Father? He is our elder brother. 
And not your older brother that was kind of mean and, didn't, and kind of was mean to you growing up. No, he's the older brother that opened doors for you. Jesus opened the door for eternal life through his resurrection. That his God has become your God. His Father has become my Father. And that I stand as an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. It says to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think the real disease to please, the real curse of it, is you become all about you. And in the end, is all you have is you. No wonder you're stressed. No wonder you can hardly make it. You're carrying the weight of the world. And you were never intended to. That's a God-sized job, not a Delmer-sized job. That is a God-sized job to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. And as I find myself carrying that weight, and burdened down and heavy and stressed and anxious about all that goes on in a culture, and from a pastor's perspective, my faith is that Jesus said he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. I believe it's going to be really, really different than maybe what I've known in times past. But I do know it is going to be wonderful, it's going to be glorious, and it's up to Jesus to do that. And so I rest in him. The angel spoke and he says, you're to call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. In context of what I'm talking about today, the verse could say, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from themselves. From themselves. If you've never opened your life to Christ, if you thought that being a Christian was being some kind of a weird person and kind of angry at the world, and that, that's not true. It's an understanding that we need someone to carry the weight for us. That we do not have what it takes on our own. And that we are dependent on an eternal God. And God made that way possible through sending his son. Lots of different ways to do that. Lots of different terms for it. But the one I like is you open your life to Christ. And if you've never done that or haven't done that in a long time, Nobody here knows but you that if you will do that, Jesus will come in and he'll help you. He'll take the weight of the world off of you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for all those that are online today, all those that are watching this video sometime, anytime. Lord, I thank you for those that have gathered here Lord, as we open our lives to you, as we cast our cares upon you, that you would help us. I pray to that end in Jesus' strong name. Amen.